Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. What's up, everyone? Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at ju3project.org. I am delighted to be here. I'm more delighted that I don't have to answer any questions. So that's that's the most important part. But I'm excited to have all of you here with us and all of all of you joining online via Facebook, YouTube, it is so amazing to have people excited about diving into the Bible. So I'm excited that you all are joining us. I'm excited that we have my friends here that are also uh, scholars. So I get to call them whenever I get jammed up. And um, they answer the questions for me, so I thought it'd be good for them to answer the questions for you tonight. I'm not gonna prolong it. We're gonna dive right in. Now we received a lot of questions uh, we won't get to all of them, um, and the first part of our Q&A will be devoted to the questions we already received previous to the, prior to the event, and then the next hour will be dedicated to the questions y'all sent in during the event via P- Pigeonhole, which Brandon has already gave you directions for that. Are y'all excited? Okay, okay. Good energy, good energy. It's cold outside, so I'm glad y'all got the energy. Um, So since we're not getting to all the questions, we want to start by giving people a framework on how you all answer hard questions about problematic texts in the Bible. Um, We'll start with Old Testament, and then we'll move to New Testament. Dr. Vitale. Thanks, Lisa. Lisa, we're in a minute, but I phoned her to get answers to my questions as well. Um, So we may just pass them over to you, Lisa. Um, It is really great to be here with you guys tonight and uh, everyone watching online as well. Uh, It's my first time in Chicago, so I'm really glad to be here. Though I'm worried now that my uh, shoe game isn't strong enough. I heard someone saying backstage that they don't trust someone unless they like their shoes. So I'm looking at yours, Lisa, and I'm like, I need your help. But that's an entirely other issue, and we won't solve that tonight. But you can help me out with that. Anyway. How, how do we get into the Old Testament? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is just don't run away. <laughs> you know, when, when you're dealing with a Bible that has over 30,000 verses, there are going to be some that are hard to understand. And I think we just need to go in with that perspective that actually, if some things don't make sense to us, not only is that okay, that's, that's actually what we should expect when we're dealing with a text that's, that's ancient, it's in a different culture. And I think sometimes we just... 
we get scared. And I think we get scared because we think, oh man, if I can't find an easy answer to this, maybe if I go deeper, maybe if I like pull back the veil, I'm actually going to discover that that, that maybe God isn't good like I thought he was. Maybe there isn't good answers to this. Maybe he's not even real. And so I think we get frightened and so we run away because our first impressions are sometimes bad. Um, I, I realized how misleading first impressions can be when I first came over to the States and I met my uh, husband-in-law's family. They're Italian-Americans in New Jersey. And <laughs> um, the first day I was there, I was sitting outside and I heard raised voices coming from in the kitchen. So I turned around and, and my husband, Vince, and his mom, they looked like they were in the middle of a screaming match. Their voices were raised. Their arms were like gesticulating everywhere. And what made it worse was she'd been chopping garlic with this huge kitchen knife. And so she was kind of like waving it around and pointing it in his face and I was thinking oh my goodness like World War III has broken out and I'm gonna have to like run in and and deal with this crisis and probably get skewered in the process by this big kitchen knife but finally it settled down I went back in I said to Vince hey like is everything okay with your mom and he just looked at me completely perplexed and, and he had no idea what I was talking about and and he said no we're perfectly fine and I was like but what about the yelling and, and the knife waving and and he just he just laughed and he said Joe that's just how Italians talk to each other and, and that's when I realized wow what looked to me like a knife fight was in fact just Italian Americans expressing their love for one another but that's when it really hit me you know if I can misunderstand like something in the 21st century just in a different culture even when you know I've traveled a bit and I've grown up watching American TV and we kind of sort of speak the same language um, then then how much harder should we expect it to be sometimes to understand what is going on in the Old Testament that's just the reality when we enter it we're entering into a wildly different world and so sometimes it's going to take a bit of time um, I read Esau's book on the plane this morning it was re really good Esau well done um, but um, he, he had this phrase he used which is just like be patient with the text and I thought that's just such a good word like be patient don't rush it if you find something hard take your time a couple of other just really quick pointers for just practical tips for like getting into the Old Testament text and um, one would be you know we're dealing not with just with a bunch of like laws coming at you it's a story it's a story of, of God um you know on a rescue mission and on a, a long relationship with his people so when you're reading a text ask the question where's this come in the story what has come before what is coming after that will help you understand what's going on in the text in front of you secondly um you know how does it relate to other verses in scripture you know, scripture interprets scripture so if you read something and you think oh that is a blatant contradiction of something else well, is it? Or is there something deeper going on? Like sometimes that's your clue that, that maybe there's something else to look into here. Another question to ask, especially in the Old Testament, is how does it fit into the ancient cultural context? Are there things that if we learnt about the surrounding cultures would actually help us to understand what's going on? How is it the same? How is it different? What does that tell us? And then in the story, is there a contrast that if you're reading one of the, you know, the, the historical accounts in the Old Testament between what human beings are doing and God's perspective? Because so often I think we read it and we think, oh my goodness, how could God approve of that? Or how could he allow that? Or think that's okay. Usually he doesn't. You know, usually there is a difference of perspective. Uh, so, so have a think about that. And then just a couple more. Firstly, when it comes to law codes in particular, because those can be really hard. Um, one thing that helps me when I come across a law code that I really struggle with is, is to ask the question, okay, who is it protecting? 
You know, because if the, if the penalty is that severe, then what is that sacred, that important, that essential that God thinks is so important, we need some really strong laws around it as a hedge to protect it. And I think sometimes that can be clarifying about what is being valued and why some of those laws are in there that we think just don't make any sense to us at all. Um, and then just one more, one more point here, which leads to Esau, is just how, how does, uh, if you're in the Old Testament, how does this point to Jesus? <laughs> What does he have to say about this? You know, how, how does his coming change the perspective here or how does he fulfill it? And I think that's always a question that we should be asking. I want to... New Testament. I want to apologize. I don't have a British accent. <laughs> so I feel like we should just let her say all of the stuff. I know all of y'all were just lulled to sleep as, as England just wafted over y'all, but that's okay. You got to deal with the South for a minute. Um, the first thing that I would say is I always remember that my panic isn't God's panic. In other words, I don't believe God's sitting up in heaven going, oh, man, 2 Corinthians, what am I going to do about it? You know, I feel like, or like he doesn't sit there and go, man, did you, did you read that argument to prove that I don't exist? Like if God is actually reigning on high and he's defeated death, then he's good. And one of the things that Paul talks about is uh, being raised up and seated with Christ. And sometimes we can think about that as having some kind of heavenly mindset that is detached from the earth. That's not it. What that means is that you see things from the perspective of God. And that sense of being with God's reigning on high gives a confidence to, to attend to the things here. So the first thing that I want to say is we don't have to panic. Or that our panic or our discomfort isn't God's discomfort. And he can handle your questions. I promise you, you've not stumped God. I promise. The, first, that, the next thing that I would say is, this may seem, forgive me, I might be lame. I got kids. So, like, my, my life is all cartoons. But um, one of my, uh, my kids used to love that, that, that um, one, Finding Nemo. You know this one? And you remember where um, the woman who has the, the female fish that has the... Um, she keeps forgetting. You know what she says to them? Just keep swimming. And I wish that I could say, just keep reading. Sometimes we get to these places in the text where we're, we're disturbed or we're bothered, but just keep reading. In other words, I believe and I'm confident in the fact that as we make our way through both the Old and the New Testament, God's character actually becomes clear. And we have to read, to my mind, the things that most clearly reveal God's character in light of the things that might be ambiguous or, tr or troubling to us. In other words, we know, like, it's, in the, it's a big part of the Bible that the Exodus occurred, right? That's a, a defining characteristic of God as one who liberates the slaves. So I know that. So when I want to call something that, like, troubles me, I just read a couple of chapters. I find, and so what I think is, what that means is, Part of what it means to be a reader of the Bible, we sometimes treat it like math. And you all will come to me, and you'll come to us with these questions that we have to solve. But it's more like music. It's knowing what key to play at the right time in conjunction with the other keys. And part of faithful biblical interpretation often learns not with putting one text to the side, or, but it's about how do you play the music. And what happens is when you just hit one note, and it drowns out the rest of the keys, sometimes you get into trouble. So that's, that may be a poetic way of getting at it, but it's really a way of saying that I think that the God who emerges across the canon is one who reveals himself as merciful, good, and just. 
And so I focus on what I know that God reveals about himself. And I go from those things that I know towards those things that are tricky. And most of the time, I actually can discern the overall point that a text is trying to make, even if I get the details wrong. And sometimes I just kind of have to suspend judgment. I mean, there's this um, passage, and forgive me if I'm just rambling on. Uh, like, there's this passage that, that, that all, if, if everything that Jesus had done had been recorded, the books couldn't, like you couldn't even, you contain it. But he said, these things were written so that you may believe, and that in believing you may have eternal life. What I mean is that God never promised to tell you everything. He promised to tell you enough. And the question is, do you actually have enough information to live for God? And I think that the New Testament actually does make it pretty clear. I don't actually think we're really terribly confused. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You have the great commandment. You have belief in the resurrection and the holiness of life depicted. If you don't understand anything else and you trust in Jesus, you'll be okay. And I, what I would try, and I, that's not to put aside those hard things, but major on the majors and don't let the things that are, that are confusing to us toss us aside. And we'll talk about method and how I deal with tricky passages as we go on. Awesome. Well, thank you both for giving us a framework. Um, so as we go on, if you don't get your questions answered, you can walk away with this framework as you wrestle with hard passages. Let's get into the first question, Old Testament. Let's talk about the Nephilim, shall we? Um, how do we make sense of Genesis 6-4 and the Nephilim? Joey, just starting off easy for you. I feel like Isla kind of wrapped it up there, you know? I think we're good. I think we're good. The Nephilim, really? We're just straight out the gate with the Nephilim. That's why I did the New Testament. <laughs> right? Yeah. You got less I mean, material got to cover. Genesis. What is going on here? Good luck. Oh, my goodness. All right. The Nephilim. Uh, I'll give you a short and a long answer. The short one is the more honest one, which is, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and, and that's probably the true answer for everybody. Um, you know, I can give you my best educated guesses, and I will. But, but really, this is one of those ones where we, we're doing our best to figure out what's going on, but, but we don't fully understand this text. So, but let me read it to you first, because context helps, as you said. So this is Genesis 6. Uh, just the beginning. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so Nephilim in Hebrew, best, um, best interpretations say either it means the fallen ones or it means giants. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, they are referred to as, as tall. Um, so that's probably a good, a good translation there for you. Um, in terms of understanding who they are, it seems like we need to go back and understand who these sons of God are, because it sounds like they are the products of the sons of God with the daughters of men. There are kind of three leading reasonings here for who they might be. One is that the sons of God were uh, rulers at that time, that they were kings. Sometimes that expression is used of a king in the Old Testament. And that what's going on is that these men have basically begun to abuse their power, particularly um, in terms of marriage and sexuality, uh, particularly in regards to polygamous marriage. And so a judgment is coming on them. Secondly, people will say, no, no, uh, the sons of, of God are actually, they're fallen angels. Uh, that interpretation primarily comes out of the 
book of Enoch, which was a Jewish uh, text written in the first century BC, and um, and talks talks about that idea. Um, that's a popular one. Everyone loves to to run with that interpretation. I think it's a bit of an outlier um, because I just think when you see the rest of the way that um, angels are kind of spoken about in the Old Testament, I think it doesn't really cohere. I also think of Jesus' words when he says, you know, in heaven, you'll be like the angels who aren't married or given in marriage. So I don't know. I have some, I have some questions about that interpretation. Um, so I think the one that if, we, if we're applying the idea of what has come before, what is the context of the passage, I think most likely is probably the reading which says, you know, the sons of God are, um, are carrying on with the line of Seth. And so what you have in Genesis uh, 4 and 5 is you have genealogies coming down from Adam, and, and there are two lines that you see. On the one hand, you have uh, the descendants of Cain, and in particular, what's highlighted there is that, that like Cain, they've kind of gone astray. They're turning from God. That's particularly emphasized with number seven in the line, who's um, Lamech, and, and he is both a murderer and a boaster, but also he's a bigamist, and so you kind of see everything going wrong down that line. Now, he's contrasted with the line of Seth. The seventh person in that line is Enoch, who we're told walked with God um, and was faithful, and then God took him away, and so he, you know, and he wasn't there anymore. And so you have these kind of contrasting genealogies being laid out, um, emphasizing Seth's line as the ones who call in the name of the Lord, the ones who are holy. And, and, And you're carrying on in that genealogy when you get to Noah. And so what scholars will say is actually we're still in that lineage when we're getting to this text. And so the sons of God are actually, it's it's a way of referring to these holy men, the ones who faithfully followed God. But what happens in Genesis 6 is you see them start to mix with the daughters of Cain. And so you see what was a holy and faithful group of people actually becoming corrupt in their their beliefs and their practices. And you kind of see just how significant this fall is because the language actually directly parallels what you're going to find in Genesis 3. So when Eve takes the fruit, we're told that um, she sees that it is desirable, and so she takes it. And then those same three um, words are used again in the Hebrew when it comes to Genesis 6. We're told that sons of God see that the daughter's man are desirable, and so they take them. And so you kind of see how sin is expanding. It's moving from the kind of like illicit um, consumption of fruit to the illicit consumption of people. It moves from desiring objects to objectifying people. And particularly, I think what you're seeing is is polygamy taking shape as well. You've kind of moved from this one flesh monogamous, I'm going to leave my mother and father and cleave to my wife in Genesis 2, that suddenly becomes these, these men who are taking from all that they chose in Genesis 6. So I think that's what's happening here. You're seeing the lines becoming corrupt. And, and at the end of the day, I think maybe it doesn't matter so much if we're not 100% sure exactly who these people are. Sometimes we're not going to know. We don't have all of the historical context uh, to work with today. But I think we know enough. I think we know enough in this text to understand what is the purpose of it. And the purpose is of, of getting to the point of explaining why does the flood happen. And actually, this tells us something really important about God's character. Because unlike some other ancient Near Eastern Uh, myths around a flood narrative where you basically have the gods saying, oh, human beings are annoying me because they're too noisy and I can't sleep, so I'm just going to wipe them out. What you have in the Bible is this very clear statement about sin and about 
justice and, and things reaching a point where actually it became so severe, so serious among human beings that actually for the sake of doing what was right, God had to act. So this tells us something really important about who God is right at the beginning of the Bible, that actually he is a God of justice and righteousness. And yet at the same time, when there's one righteous person, one righteous household, he will save Noah and he will redeem. And I think that is this tremendous image right at the beginning that ultimately takes us all the way to the New Testament. Right at the beginning, we see the justice of God and the mercy of God intersecting in this powerful way in Genesis that runs all the way through the Old Testament and ultimately is going to take us to the cross. Amen. Amen. I'm about to pass the plate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we want to dive into the New Testament. Before we go there, I want to ask you a question because I think this is a pressing question for the community. Why do all black people have to play spades? <laughs> <laughs> I, Um, I just want to know because why? Why do we all? I don't know. I don't, don't make the rules. That. Just, just, I don't. I don't make. <laughs> I just want you to sit with that because you tried to shame me on social. <laughs> she, so, waited, she she sat on that space joke for like all of these weeks and she got me live. Okay, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. To the New Testament, First Corinthians. Hold on. She she in these streets talking about calling books tricks and she doesn't. Even, anyways, go ahead. I don't know it. what any of it means. Okay, you, so you can ask saying, the Bible. Like, we'll do the Bible, and then we we'll do the. I just go off the YouTube during the tutorials. interlude. If y'all don't know how to play spades, I'll give you a quick tutorial. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna bless y'all double today. On to the New Testament, First Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, and First Timothy 2, 11 through 15. They're the passages about women, as you know. How should we think about these passages? Yeah, um, this at least is going to get at at least how I interpret the Bible, and especially um, the question as it relates to women. If it's okay, I'm going to set First Timothy aside because it's hard to deal with both of these things at the same time. I think one of the ways in which, and this is going to get to some of the other questions we have later, and it gets to my analogy of music, it's always about the first note that you hit. And a lot of times when we talk about women in the church, we always begin with what they can't do. And the first passage we ask is, what about this prohibition? And I always wonder, well, what would happen if we started in a different place and read the rest of the Bible in light of those things? So, for example, we all know the story of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1, um, we're going to get to Corinthians. Just give me a second. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, Luke makes it a point of saying the, the disciples were in the upper room and Mary and the women. So Luke makes it clear that in the upper room at Pentecost, there were women and men there praying. Then it says that the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost. And then it says everyone who was in the room, who was just enunciated in the last chapter, go out. And then it says the people who hear them hear all of the people there declaring the mighty works of God. And then they ask the question, what does this mean? They said, Peter, what's going on here? And Peter explains, you know what Peter does? This is an amazing thing that Peter does. He quotes a scripture. He says, in the last days, my spirit will fall upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. So the reason you see these men and women out here preaching at the beginning of the church is because God promised that when he acted to redeem his people, one sign of that redemption would be men and women proclaiming the word together. So how do we, what, would, what would it look like to begin talking about women in the church with saying, we want a church that looks like Pentecost? Right? What if we did that? What if we started asking questions about, um, so we could talk about the women who proclaim the resurrection, 
we'll actually go from that idea to Corinthians itself. And I'll read it. That's okay? I got to open it up. Forgive me, I don't, I don't have my Bible that has the little string, so I got to flip old school style. But everybody knows who the Corinthians are, so I flip with confidence. <laughs> Some of them, you kind of like, you, you gotta, gotta go. So, um, the women should be, this is just whatever translation I have here. The women should be quiet, I don't know, I just pick one up. <laughs> the women should be quiet during the meeting. They are not allowed to talk. Instead, they need to get under control, just as the law says. If they want to learn something, they should ask their husbands at home. It is disgraceful for a woman to talk during the meetings. Now, that's really interesting, right? Because it seems like you're now running into a real problem that the woman can't speak at all. The interesting thing about that is that if you read chapter 11 in Corinthians, you, you see a different scenario. In chapter 11 in the book of 1 Corinthians, there is a question as to whether or not women should wear a head cover. You know this one? Now, we're not going to get into an interpretation of the head coverings and all of those things, but it's pretty clear that the reason that they should wear their head coverings or not related to what women should do while they're doing what? Praying and prophesying. So it seems like in Corinth, in Corinth, this is not Greek, Hebrew, this is not fancy, in Corinth, there were women who were speaking in the church in the form of prayer and prophecy, which is exactly what you see women doing at Pentecost. So if I'm going to take 1 Corinthians as a whole seriously, there must be some contextual explanation for why Paul enjoins silence in chapter 14 when he regulated how they should pray and prophesy, not whether, but like the, their, their, their wardrobe. He also says something about men and what they do while they pray and prophesy too. So we know that we have women who are speaking and praying and prophesying in the church. One last thing about this particular part. You may say, well, what is prophecy? I'm glad that you asked. Because Paul says that, that prophecy in the, he actually calls it the greatest of the spiritual gifts, if you actually have read Corinthians. He says, praying in tongues is great, but I wish that you would all would prophesy. Why? Because he actually says prophesying is for the edification and the building up of the church. So let's put these things together. In Corinth, there are women who are praying and prophesying. Prophesying, according to Paul, is for the building up of the body of Christ. So in Corinth, there are women who are speaking in such a way that edifies or educates and informs members of the congregation. So we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 14 does actually not mean complete silence. This is not doing tricks with the Bible. We're saying if we're going to understand just this particular letter in context, just keep swimming, right? Then you've got to begin to make sense of it. And so all scholars who get to this passage recognize this contradiction, and they make one of two directions. Some people say that, well, Paul was given a hypothetical in chapter 11, and now 14, he's revealing his real opinion. That doesn't seem to be the case. But the other thing that people say is that if you do a contextual reading of chapter 14, chapter 14 actually deals with the interpretation of tongues. So someone speaks a message, and then they begin to analyze that particular message. So the silence, one way of interpreting, there's a bunch of them, we won't do all of them. One of the ways of interpreting this is not that Paul is saying that women can never speak in the church, because we know that they do from chapter 11. But what they can't do is participate in the evaluation of certain prophecies. Now, why would that be the case? One scenario was the following. Let's say your husband, this is because he actually doesn't mention single women, so it has something to do with marriage. He says, what if your husband stands up and gives a prophecy? And one of the things that would happen would be someone gives a prophecy, the congregation decides is that from God. 
Now, you can imagine it's going to be a little bit of drama <laughs> if your wife stands up and say, that wasn't God talking to you, right? And so what Paul is saying, if there's a beef, you just wait till you, you go, you know, maybe y'all, you know, like, you on the way home in the car, she'd be like, baby, that wasn't it. <laughs> but you don't do that in front of the full congregation. That's option one. Another option, which actually I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit persuaded by, is that the issue actually isn't even just your husband, and this gets complicated, this gets into interchurch dynamics, and you have to understand a little bit about the age difference in the first century. A lot of the times, we won't get into why, women were married at a younger age to older men, so the women would be 15, 16 years old, the men 25, 30 years old, women were illiterate, oftentimes men were better educated. So now you have a man who's a leader in the community who steps up and gives a prophecy, and a woman stands up and says, God didn't say that to you. Well, actually, what's going to probably happen is they're going to assume that the husband put the wife up to it to get the man. And you can kind of see how this little dynamic would work itself out. So in other words, these evaluation of prophecies were leading to minor beefs in the congregation. And so once again, if you think that this guy's a heretic, talk to your husband about it at home instead of bringing it into church drama. The last one, and forgive me for giving you these scenarios, but we don't know is y'all heard the oracles of Delphi? Or at least y'all, if y'all live, I know, I know you don't do this because y'all are super saved, but you know you have like these fortune tellers that you go to at, at the carnival. I know y'all don't do it, but you heard of them? All right, <laughs> I know. And so you go to the fortune teller and you give the fortune teller your money and then they tell you what's going to happen to you. And they'd be super vague, right? What's going to happen to you? You're going to be blessed. What's kind of, what's, am I going to have a kid? You're going to be surrounded by children. And then you say, I didn't have any kids. But like, oh, but you work at a kindergarten. And so, right, you know how this is how they do the hustle. And so back in the day, what they would do is, yeah, this, they're like, am I still getting played? Y'all been get, this is the same hustle for 2,000 years. <laughs> so what they would do is to get the oracles down, they would ask a bunch of questions to tighten the prophecy. So you pay your money, and I keep asking you questions until I found out I'm going to have a son within 12 months. And so if that's the way that you're used to doing prophecies, and this often would happen with women who would go to these oracles, now they're coming into the church, and the person is standing up to give the prophecy, and the woman keeps asking more and more questions for more details, because that's actually how you do the prophecies out in the streets. And so they're saying, no, 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 like the prophet can say what the prophet has to say, but you can't keep badgering him with questions. You have a question about it, ask your husband at home. So all three of those are valid um, illusions. One, don't come for your husband in public. That's not going to be the best look. Two, don't even come for, like, you know, the guy that your husband is beefing with because that's going to cause family dynamics. Three, don't keep pestering the prophet. Now, the reason that is really important is because it takes Chapter 14 seriously that is, that's dealing with the assessment of prophecies, generally speaking, and allows you to understand how Paul can say in chapter 11 that women can pray and prophesy, but here he speaks about silence. And the last thing I'll say about that is that no one actually interprets this passage literally. We all bake in exceptions because if you interpret it without any hermeneutical nuance, then they can't do announcements, they can't sing, they can't do this. And so what we do instead is that Paul is talking about authority preaching from the pulpit. And then I want to say, where's the pulpit in Corinth? And so what I'm saying is we all are reconstructing this text and trying to make sense of it. 
And this is just one way of reconstructing it. And what I really want you to hear is, this has not come from me setting aside the authority of the scripture or even settling all the debates about women in the church. What I'm saying here is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35, is not the place to begin that conversation if you're gonna take what Paul says in chapter 11 very seriously. Thank you. Thank you both. I'm gonna ask you all to cut your answers in half. Sorry, I know, that was, a, um, you asked about women, sorry. No, I, 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 no the, these are the two lo the the, longer the long ones, ones at yes. the, but um, so we can make it through most yes. of these in the, the first hour, but great answer. <laughs> Great answer from both of y'all. Y'all did exceptional. And didn't they do well? Yes. That's the reason why I didn't even mention 1 Timothy. I said we would be done if we went over there. We just put it to the side. <laughs> Dr. Vitali, let's talk about polygamy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, says, The Lord says, I gave your, mas I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all and if all this had been too little, I had I would have given you even more. The person is asking, does this mean that God sanctioned polygamy since he said, since the Lord is saying, I gave you your master's wives? Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> okay. I'm Let's try and make this quicker. Okay, well, we already, I mean, we touched on polygamy a little bit already. Um, and I think we can see in Genesis how actually you're already starting to see a trajectory of saying, no, 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 that, that's not okay. That's not how God designed it or intended it. And part of the sign of, of the world getting messed up is polygamy coming in. I think you see that same pattern actually through the Old Testament. I think the standard for marriage, the biblical teaching on it is a monogamous relationship. And you see that in most pairings, whether you want to talk about um, you know, Moses and his wife, or whether we're talking about Adam and Eve, or whether we talk about Noah and his wife and their son, so on and so forth. And I think when you get exceptions, which of course you do in the Old Testament, pretty much every time you're going to come across one of those in the narratives, you're going to, uh, you're going to come across a story that is just tragic. You know, it's going to show the rivalry, the jealousy, the discord, the breakdown of relationships. And I think the whole purpose of these is to show this is not how God intended it. And when we go this way, it makes a huge mess. And in fact, I think you only really see the, the restoration of covenants and relationship and, and redemptive endings for both Abraham and Sarah, but also for Jacob in his situation when both of them actually step away from polygamy. So I think that's kind of the context. I'd say the same with the law codes, actually. People like to pull out Leviticus 18.18, and they'll say, oh, but that, that law code actually says a man can't take as a, um, a rival wife the sister of his wife. And so people will basically look at that verse and they'll say, well, that means as long as you're, you're not marrying two sisters, you can marry two wives. But actually that verse is, I think, intending the exact opposite in the law code. So actually the phrase that's used, adding one wife to another, um, in referring to these two sisters, is used eight times elsewhere in the Old Testament, and never once does it refer to biological sisters. The same is true when it's used of men. It, it, it talks about adding one brother to another, but it's never talking about biology. So I actually think this is direct prohibition against uh, polygamy within the legal codes as well. And just in case you're thinking, oh, well, maybe the king gets an exception, actually Deuteronomy 17 verse 17 uh, specifically says, for the king, uh, no, you can't multiply wives. And so I think actually when, when we're getting into the text, the wider text, we're seeing a clear um, uh, condemnation of polygamous activities. Then what is going on in this particular text? Well, I actually think this one uh, becomes a little easier for us when we, uh, 
when, when you actually look at what the words are saying here, I actually think what it's talking about here isn't saying that, um, that the expectation is that David is taking these women into his arms, as in into his bed, but actually it's talking about them being added to his household. You know, and that just makes sense because he's, you know, he's now king, and so he has a duty of care for these women. Now, we know of two of them. There was a wife and a concubine that Saul had. The wife was actually the mother of, um, of David's first wife. And so that would be problematic in itself because the law codes also say that that is incest in Leviticus uh, 18 verse 17, and therefore you can't do that. So actually, that reading doesn't really make sense to think of it as polygamy. I think it makes more sense to say actually he's taking them in um, in order to provide a duty of care for them and as a sign of God's affirmation of his kingship that now they belong to his household. Now, does David commit polygamy? Yes, he does. Um, Is it a disaster for his household? Yes, it is. In fact, the whole tragedy of 2 Samuel, I think, can be traced down to all the bad sexual choices that he and his sons make. Um, and, and so I think that's why when eventually he's restored to the kingship after his son has rebelled against him, you actually see a change in David as well. You know, all, all the women who his, his son terribly violated, um, who David's wives and concubines, Absalom sleeps with them on the rooftop when he becomes king. And after David is restored to the kingship, you know, he takes them in and he looks after them, but he doesn't uh, sleep with them anymore. In fact, the only woman, it seems, from that point on, who's present in his life as a wife is Bathsheba. And it even makes this little point of saying, actually, at the end of his life, we're told he's looked after by this woman called Abishag, but the text explicitly says, but he didn't sleep with her. She was taking care of him. So it seems like there's been a change in David's heart as well as a recognition that actually this wasn't the right way to go. Far from it being sanctioned by God, I think that story is laying out the total opposite. That's, that's helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Vitelli. Dr. McCauley, let's go to three days and three nights. Did I have to, I have to read the question first. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Why does the Lord say he will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth in Matthew 1240 when he was there three days and two nights? He rose on the third day. Yeah, um, this is one of those things where um, it's really important to keep the central question at the forefront. And the real, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the question, but the real issue that ought to concern us is whether or not Christ rose from the grave, right? So like if he defeated death, then you can, in theory, you could just say, what difference does it make? And I think that we sometimes get caught up in details in such a way that it can kind of distort us from the central message. The point of it is that Jesus knew that he was going to die and he was going to be raised again. Now, the first thing I'll do is I'll just give you an analogy. How many of you have said, hey, man, I'll call you back in a minute? When did you call him back? In a short period of time. Man, I'll be, be, or (laughs) my wife is always late. God bless her. It's like, I'll be home in 20 minutes. I know that means an hour. (laughs) And so we actually don't communicate time even in our context, literally. But it is also the case that in Jewish idioms that any part of a day counted as a day. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Like, so for, in a, like we think it, we're thinking 24-hour days, but it was common, and if we had time, and you don't want me to, we don't, you don't need to read it, but you can look at some of the rabbinic literature and see how they talk about parts of a day as a day. So when Jesus said he's going to be in the belly of a, of a whale three days and three nights, He's just saying, for three days, I'm going to be dead. It doesn't have to be 72 hours. Um, that's not the point. The point that he's trying to make, and this is what I want you to understand, maybe interpretive-wise. The question isn't just what the author said. 
It is what the author is trying to communicate through what they said. And so what Jesus was trying to communicate three, three days and three nights was not 72 hours, but that you know that I know that I'm going to die and I'm going to rise in three days so that what happens to me later is not this surprise. And if you get that, you can get it there. If you really, really want to look, you can, if the person is listening, you can look and find in Jewish sources where they count part of a day as a day. And you may say, I wish they didn't talk like that, but we don't get to decide or determine the rules for Jewish communication in the first century. The most that we can do as Christians is try to understand it. Thank you, Dr. McCauley. Back to the Old Testament. <laughs> Sorry, you didn't get that much of a break. They on you, they on your neck today. <laughs> the Levite and the concubine is a troubling passage. Um, Phyllis Tribble has a book called Text of Terror in which she lists this passage as a, 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 a text of terror. Um, how should we make sense of this in Judges? Okay, yeah. It is a text of terror, and I think, I think it's supposed to be deeply troubling, and there would be something really problematic if we weren't troubled by this text. For those of you who don't know it, really quickly, it's in Judges 19 to 20, and um, basically it's a story of a Levite. Now, Levites are supposed to be the tribe that are uh, set apart to be extra holy because they're the ones <laughs> that the priest had come from. Uh, not in this case. He has a, a concubine, and while they're traveling, um, in, a, in another city in the territory of the Benjaminite tribe. Uh, they stay in a house that night, and then basically a gang come and um, try and attack them in the house, and they're trying to get in. And so uh, to save his own skin, the Levite throws the concubine out of the door. Uh, she's raped all night, and she's killed. And then he opens the door in the morning and uh, finds her dead. And, um, and then in this kind of like further horrifying act, uh, he, he basically dismembers her body and sends it out to all the different tribes of Israel to basically say, like, how could this have happened? Um, a question we're all asking. Um, I think, uh, yeah, this is a really problematic passage. There are so many problems, actually, with this passage, multiple layers. There's, there's the fact that the, the man who was supposed to be protecting her actually uh, just disposes of her in a completely callous way, has no regard for her life. And um, there, there are the rapists who rape and murder her. And then there's the reaction of God's own people who um, are so angry that you know, they say, never has such a thing been done in Israel since we came out of slavery. And so they go off on this, you know, bloody crusade where they basically wage war against the Benjaminites, like tens of thousands of people die. But in all of that, in their pursuit of, of what they think is justice, they don't even look closely enough to, to look at what happened with the Levite in the first place. And, and his callous disregard of her, the way that he treats her, just gets completely passed up. So in every sense, it feels like justice is being overlooked in this text. Um, but then when we read the reason, like, why is this in Scripture? Actually, what becomes really clear uh, from the book of Judges is actually this isn't present here to glorify what is happening. God does not approve of what's going on in this text, but actually throughout the book of Judges, we keep hearing this refrain um, that the people began to do what was right in their own eyes. Basically, they get into this kind of moral relativism where there is no good or evil, there's no divine standard, but just whatever their preferences are. And, and as that refrain is, refrain is repeated, we see the behavior just spiraling and spiraling and becoming so harmful and destructive. And this is basically where it culminates in this devastation. And yet, even though this, this text is, is really sickening, at the same time, you know, when people say to me, Joe, how can this be in the Bible? I, I actually find myself responding like, honestly, how could it not be? You know, how could this text not be in the Bible? Particularly when uh, we're in an, 
you know, the generation of like uh, Church 2 and, and the Me Too movement, I actually think this is one of the most important texts for women in our day and age today to have in the Bible because it's a text that tells the truth. You know, it's not a text that is sweeping things under the carpet or saying, you know what, life is just a fairy tale and, and no big deal, people aren't really that bad. No, it's, it's literally holding up a mirror against us and saying, this is the ugly reality of where sin can take us and, and how abusive we can become in our behaviors. And actually, to be honest with you, like this text has personally just hit me even harder over the last two years because I discovered that I was basically in, in the vicinity of abuse myself. And not only did I fail to, to see it, but actually, I, I didn't want to see it. I think I was eager not to because I just didn't want it to be true. And so it took me way too long to recognize the severity of it and, and the, the devastating harm that had been caused. You know, but then when we look at this text, it challenges us because it says you cannot bury your head in the sand and just forget what's happened. You know, this, this public statement here in Scripture of, of having her story and front and center, you know, it basically says to us that even though the Levite doesn't see her, even though her rapists definitely don't see her, even though the people of God in their kind of, you know, knee-jerk reaction, they too don't really see what's, what's going on and what would be just. Like, God will not allow her to go unseen. Like, he, he puts this story, um, her story, right there in the text so that even, like, down the centuries, thousands of years later, we're still talking about her today. We're still remembering. We're still having to face the reality of injustice and abuse and brokenness. And it's uncomfortable, but it should be uncomfortable for us. It makes me think of the question Jesus asks in Luke chapter 7 when, when you know, this crowd are in front of him and they're judging him for associating with this woman who's known about town as a sinner. And he just looks them in the eye and he asks them this really profound question. He says to them, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Do you see her not as the label that's been put on her or her reputation, not for the things that she's had done to her or the things that she's done, but, but for who she is, for her worth, for, for a daughter of God who has sacred worth and is just fiercely loved? And it makes me think again of that, that question that Hagar asks in Genesis 16. She's another concubine who's been just so badly mistreated by her mistress and her master, just so abused. And she runs into the desert and she's fleeing for her life and she's at the end of herself. And suddenly she has this unbelievable encounter. It's the first time in the Bible that someone has a supernatural encounter with a messenger from God and it's her. And then, you know, we're told in the scripture that it says, and, and Hagar gave this name to the God um, who spoke to her. And she said, you are the God who sees me. And she said, I've now seen the one who sees me. And, you know, she is the only person in the whole Bible who gets to give God a name, this woman. And what does she name him? Of all the things she could have said of him, she says, you're the God who sees me. You see me in my suffering, in my abuse, in my injustice. And I think that is just so important. You know, I think there will be people here tonight, there are people watching online who you have been through it. And you've just wondered, does anyone see? You know, does God even care about my suffering? And I think if, you know, as we're looking into these questions tonight about the character of God, what is God like? What is the God of the Bible like? Who is he? Is he trustworthy? Actually, this is, this is for me, is the key thing, that he is the God who sees. He's the God who says, no matter what you've been through or what you've done or what's been done to you or what your struggle has been or, or, or what is going on in your life, I will not overlook you. You are not lost in the crowd, but I see you. And I think that's what this text says to me. It says, you know, God's going to tell the truth about our suffering, about the abuses, 
He won't allow things just to be hidden. He won't allow us just to forget them. He will ensure that they're brought to light, that, that, that witness is born to them, but also that justice is one day going to set them right. You know, that's ultimately the, what the cross is about. You know, that's what, what, what he will come back to do. But in the meantime, I, I like this text because it's so challenging to me and it's so convicting because it, it basically turns the question back on us and it says, what about us? Are we just doing what is right in our own eyes? You know, where has that gotten us? And are there, there things right in front of our eyes that we're refusing to see? Are we willing to allow God to open our eyes to the injustice that's in front of us? And if he does, how will we respond and what will we do about it? And are we going to be complicit or are we going to, you know, do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God? And, and I think those are big, powerful questions that come out of this text. And so it's painful, but it's really important. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Joe Vitale. I'm always blown away by how you answered that question, and you really, you really ministered through that, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Esau. Yes. Are you ready? No. <laughs> so let's talk about slavery in the Bible, shall we? Yeah. Um, is that the question? No. no. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. We still haven't gotten an answer to this base question, but okay, we'll let it's, that it's, live. it's still sitting there. <laughs> what should we make of Paul and Peter's words about slavery in the New Testament? They seem to condone it. Yeah, um, I think once again, I take my cue here, and I can't answer this question in full. I wrote a whole chapter in my book. I don't really. This is not selling books. I'm just saying, I can't do everything in this time. But when I always take my cues from our ancestors, my ancestors, my Christian ancestors, who had to answer this question while enslaved. And one of the things that they did is they actually didn't start with the, pro, with, with the Pauline passages. In other words, they got to choose the ground upon which they wanted to answer this question. And you can see a couple of things. They taught me they were instructive. There's this letter that's written to the representatives in one's in Massachusetts and the other one's in Connecticut, right around the time, because this is really about black people, right? We know what's underneath this. It's about, um, they wrote it to the House of Representatives in Connecticut. And they said, you know, you're about to have this um, war to have equality. How can you have this war towards equality when you enslave black people? And then they said something that was really, really interesting. They said, in the Bible, it says that uh, the children should submit to their parents. How can a child submit to his parents if you can sell them? And it says that the husband is supposed to be faithful to his wife and the wife is to their husband. How can that be the case if you can break up their marriage? In other words, they didn't just make the argument about the reinterpretation of certain prohibition passage. They spoke about the whole, how the whole of the Bible and the Christian vision of society speaks against slavery. They even spoke about when Paul says, they said, these are enslaved people writing to other Christians. Paul says we both bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How can I bear your burden when you force me to do so? And so what they're showing you is the question isn't just what this particular text says. It is what the Bible reveal. And then you begin to have to ask yourself these questions, right? You have to begin to ask the questions the slaves began to ask when they first encountered this text. When I see God creating the world, does it seem like God created a world in which he intended people to be enslaved? And the question, the answer to that question is no. Well, then where does slavery come from? Slavery is the product of the fall. It is a manifestation of human evil, not what God intends. 
The other thing that you could begin to see when you look at this thing is if you go through the if you go through the, most of the the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's two themes that they return to over and over again, and this is important. God made the world. God redeemed the Jews from slavery. So whenever things were, whenever things were bad, they would say, "I remember. Don't things are bad. But remember, He brought us out of Egypt. He did it once. He'll do it again." That becomes the moral reasoning that begins to seep into the consciousness of Israel. You also have God himself say, when you get a foreigner and these people, it's like, treat them well. Why? Because you should remember that you were slaves in Egypt. So here's an amazing thing. God creates a people for whom their founding story is the liberation of slavery. Maybe that reveals his fundamental disposition towards reality more than some of those other passages. So in other words, you can either explain away the exodus and say that wasn't God's real opinion. He wanted us to enslave one another. Or there's something else going on in some of these passages. Well, then what is going on in some of these passages? And, and, and I make this distinction in both the laws and the Torah and in Paul's own writings. And I have to stop speaking about it here. But there's a difference between laws to reveal what God wanted us to be and God that limits the damage that we do to one another in a fallen world. And I think that what you see is, in all of these places, what you see God doing, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is limiting, limiting the damage that we do to one another. And what I want you to understand is, especially when it comes to someone like Paul and Peter, there's a difference between what Paul and Peter says and what we're allowed to imagine. In other words, Paul and Peter are writing to a church with no social, cultural, or political power in a tyranny where they couldn't vote or do anything. But what, what's the, what is the responsibility of a Christian nation and a representative democracy where you can change the laws? I'll say one last thing, and this is one of my like, favorite analogies, and then forgive me. Y'all, how many of y'all, and I'm not trying to be mean. I just want you, and I'm even trying to push this stuff aside. I want us to think for a second and kind of reason like adults. How many of us have cell phones or computers? Now, I think all of us know where these cell phones come from, right? They come from the majority world. And we know that those cell phones are built in factories that exploit their workers. And if it's not your cell phones, it's your clothes. If it's not your clothes, it's your shoes. If it's not your shoes, your computer. And we know these things. So what do we do? We actually like poke at the edges of it. Oh man, I'm gonna to go to the thrift store and so that makes it a little bit worse. I'm gonna buy some Toms and they, do they donate a part of it. If something is really egregious, we'll get mad at Apple for a week or two and then we'll come back. One day, we're going to figure out, and here's the thing, God forbid that anybody here questions capitalism that lives on the exploitation of people and we're all caught up in its web and we can't escape. And so what do we do as Christians? What do we do? We know these things, all of us know. But we do these small things to kind of calm our consciences while pointing our finger at the Apostle Paul. And one day, someone's going to look back at us in the year of our Lord, 2021, and say, how did these Christians allow this to happen? It is because we can't actually imagine an economy that functions about the exploitations of others. And if we are stuck in this kind of place when we have cultural and economic power, maybe Maybe what Paul was dealing with is more complicated than we give him credit for. And then when we begin to ask questions of what Paul did when he had power, when he is engaging with Philemon Onesimus, when, when he has power, he actually, in my opinion, intervenes on behalf of the enslaved person and says, you should set him free. 
And what about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says to the slaves, if you can get free, do so. So it seems to be the case that when Paul had an opportunity to intervene on behalf of people who were in slavery, he did so. It seems like he also said to the slaves, if you can get free, do so. But it also seems like Paul, and this is the part that you have to wrestle with, is trying to make sense of a world in which slavery is the economic reality. And the last thing I'll say about this, though, it is amazing that Paul thought that the gospel had an impact on that. Right? That every aspect of our lives had to be rethought in the light of the gospel. And if we had a real, a whole lot of time, we'd go into the ways in which Paul um, talks about those things. And the last part I'll do as the caveat, I'm not saying that Paul had a good slavery and what happened in America is bad slavery. What I'm saying is, is the Bible as a whole creates a disposition towards reality that should lead us towards liberation. Thank you. Don't you just wish you could call them every time you get stumped in the Bible? Just pick up the phone. I can, so I thank God for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dr. Vitale, Old Testament. Let's talking about men selling their daughter as slaves. Um, really easy one. Exodus 21, verses 7 through 9. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then she shall let, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since she has broken faith with her. If he designates her son for his, if, if he designates her son for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. It seems that this verse, hold on, I'm sorry. It seems that this verse a male ba has a male-based morality being placed in the mouth of God. How do we make sense of that? It seems like the biblical ethics of God are not consistent. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to hear. I think when we hear that, um, immediately these assumptions come, come into our heads. We think, okay, well, it's saying... It's okay to sell your daughter as a slave, and uh, it's pretty biased because at least, you know, a son would get to go free at Jubilee after six years, but apparently she doesn't get to go free. She's a slave for life. Oh, and it looks like he can just take her as a sexual slave, but hey, if he doesn't want her, then he can just cast her off. So what is going on in this text? Um, well, firstly, I, I think to the first point there, I'd want to say, it's coming back to what Issa was just talking about. Um, he basically spoke about the laws that are in there um, not as ideals, but to limit the damage, case law, basically. And this is one of those. You know, this, this text does any more than when you read a text that says, you know, when a man steals an ox, God isn't saying, yay, theft. Like, in the same way here, when it says, you know, when a man sells his daughter into slavery, this is devastating. You know, this is a tragedy. Uh, but the reason this law is here is not to approve of that or to say that's okay, but to recognize that actually, like, in, as he said, in, in, as slavery is a result of the fall in fallenness and in a broken world, sometimes you're so desperate and on the point of starvation that the only way you can even imagine survival for your family is to sell them into slavery. You know, and the, the Old Testament tries to prevent that happening. You know, God says, I want there to be no poor among you. There are all these provisions made for the poor, but in desperate circumstances. 
and when this is taking place and, and you know it's going to happen anyway, this law is here basically to say, if this is going to happen, this terrible tragedy, then I'm going to try and limit the damage as much as possible. So how does that happen in this text? Well, secondly, um, important to note, yes, that, that the male slaves do go free. So then why doesn't she? And this comes back to our point again about polygamy. Um, because actually, uh, the Bible doesn't condone polygamy. And so when we're talking about this woman, actually it parallels um, another text that you find in uh, Deuteronomy 21, um, which basically talks about a similar thing when, when a woman is taken captive in warfare. And these texts parallel each other. And that what they're basically saying is you cannot take her as a sexual slave, but instead you have to bring her into your household as a wife. Um, and so the reason in, in this context that she's not allowed to go free is actually because to do that would be to treat her as a sexual slave. It would basically be to be like, okay, I'll enjoy you for seven years, but then I'll, I'll just let you go and find someone else. But no, what it's saying is um, she, you're to make her your wife. Um, you're to honor her. She's to come into your household. And because she's a wife, that's a permanent position. You're going to have children. She's your wife forever. It's, she's not disposable. So actually, the reason she doesn't go out um, like the men, is because she's made a wife. It's actually about honoring her and protecting her and giving her the status of a full family member. This actually is more protective of her. Um, but then the question becomes, okay, well, what, is, what does this verse mean when it, you know, it talks about, oh, but if you're not you know, pleased with her, is it basically implying, okay, but if you sleep with her and you know, you're no longer sexually satisfied, then you can just you know, throw away. And you know, actually the verse goes on to talk about you know, if another woman coming into the household um, just after that, does that mean you can just find someone else? Um, no, that's not what this text is saying. And actually it would be clearer for us. It's a little bit annoying that actually our English translations here are based on the Greek um, version of this text rather than the original Hebrew, which is the older version, because in the original Hebrew, it's actually clearer for us. It actually says that, um, that uh, it's very explicit. It says, if she doesn't please you so that you don't want to betroth her, then you can't sell her on. So this isn't talking about the context of sleeping with someone and then ditching them. It's actually saying, if you decide after you've made this commitment to this woman's father who's entrusted his daughter to you to take care of her and protect her, actually, I don't want to go ahead with the marriage, then you're breaking faith with her. And so then what are the options in that situation? Well, you cannot sell her because you've broken faith. Um, she can be redeemed back if the family have the money to do that, but they might not. Um, if, if you have a son from a previous marriage, then you know, she could marry your son instead, but then you have to treat her as a, a daughter, you know, again, with the full honor of being a, a proper wife in that context. Or if you go on to, to marry another woman, not another woman in addition to her, but another woman instead of her, um, then you still have to provide for her because you've pledged to her family. And so uh, the things you have to provide for her, the text says, are basically money, uh, clothing, and uh, there's a word they find hard to translate, but it's most likely housing. So basically what's going on in this text is basically an instance of trying to limit the damage in a terrible economic situation, a tragedy as far as possible, but in order to take care of this woman. It's not about harming her or oppressing her. It's not a pro-slavery, male-based uh, morality that's happening here, but actually it's strongly in favor of this woman and that she be treated rightly in really hostile and difficult circumstances. Thank you, Dr. Vitali. They've done such an amazing job. Can we give them a hand? Are y'all enjoying this tonight? Make sure y'all are sharing it on social media sharing it with your family or friends that have questions about problematic passages. We're gonna have a commercial break and they'll be right back to answer some of the questions that you all submitted. Uh, like I said, we won't get to all of them, but we'll try to do as many as we can in this next hour. See y'all soon.
We are so thankful for our partners in this. Um, IVP, we thank you for and campaign co-posting with us. We're also thankful for uh, Progressive Baptist Church and Pastor Charlie Dates. This is where we had our first courageous conversation. So Progressive has been a consistent partner with us. We're so thankful for their whole team, Shantae, and all that works with all the people that work with her to make today possible. So we're so thankful for y'all. In addition, we're thankful to Nehemiah Weaver and Kingdom Promotions. Uh, I ran into Nehemiah in the airport some time ago. He was like, you have any events uh, that, that uh, I can help sponsor? And I was like, sure, I got an event. And um, he came through with helping us put this on. So thankful. He didn't want any credit, uh, but I wanted to give him kudos anyway for that. Um, Jew 3 Project exists to help black Christians know what they believe and why. And people ask me all the time, how did you start Jew 3 So I grew up a PK. Any PKs in here? Okay, just a few. PKs unite. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I never questioned the Bible. The first time I questioned it was when I was five and we were taking offering. And we had just, in Sunday school, talked about them doing offerings in the Old Testament. And they were like, we're going to get this money to God. And I was wondering, how are we going to get this money to God? <laughs> Is there, are, in my five-year-old mind, like trying to ration with Sunday school, like, are we going to take the money? They take the money in the back, and it's a fire offering that come up. So perplexed. Uh, that was the deepest I had thought about my faith until I got to undergrad. Took a New Testament course at University of North Florida. Nobody told me at a university it's not like Sunday school. So I uh, really challenged by that. Uh, first day of class, my professor said, I want to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. Boy, did she start to flip things upside down in my life. And uh, it was really challenging for me. But thankfully, I had a pastor that's my dad. He saw me struggling, introduced me to apologetics. But there weren't many African-Americans at the time doing it. So I wanted to create an organization to bridge that gap. And that is why we got G3 Project. We had our first event July 12, 2014. Fast forward, God has blessed us to do so many things, HBCU tours, national conferences, curriculum, courses, mini series online. We've done so much by the grace of God. And we, we are, thank you. We are so grateful for God's grace so far and what he's doing now in the life of G3 and where he's taking us. And I want to invite you all to join on this ride with us. To, I want to give you an opportunity to be a part of the great work that God is doing with the Jew 3 Project. And there are three ways you could be a part. One, you could pray for us. You could be praying for us because, as you can imagine, the enemy doesn't like the work we're doing. And he fights against the work. But God has given us the power to overcome the enemy. So we're thankful for that. But pray for us. Pray for the hearts of the people that we're reaching, that they will be touched, that the lost we encounter will come to faith in Christ, um, that people's faith will be strengthened. Number two, you can promote through your social media, adding us online, um, sharing it with your friends, sharing videos, all the things. Promote us online. We're at Jude 3 Project on every social media uh, platform and then you can help in the process and what we mean by that is help fund the ministry of Jude 3. God has done amazing things through the gifts of people like you and others watching online. 
You can give in several ways. You can give online at jude3project.org by hitting the donate tab. You can give by mail and our PO box is on the screen or you could text to give any amount at 215-51-JUDE3. And so I wanna encourage you to come alongside us, whether you're praying, promoting, or joining in the process through funding, you can, you can help aid the ministry of JUDE3. And we're so thankful for all you have done. We're thankful for all of you who have attended today and all those are streaming online. This is so encouraging to come out, to see y'all, this crowd in seven degree weather is a blessing. Uh, because I probably would be home if it wasn't my event because I'm from Florida. So I'm so encouraged, so thankful for y'all. And let's get into part two of this amazing event. I want to invite up Joe Vita Dr. Joe Vitale and Dr. Esau McCauley again. Welcome them as they come. Did you, did you get the space uh, answer that yet? <laughs> I have some strong feelings about spades. Wow. I'm with Lisa. I need to know how to play, you know. <laughs> Uno, you know. <laughs> yeah. If you're under 12, I guess you can play Uno. Yeah, I'm not that mature. <laughs> I have now, Esau, children. I play Uno regularly. I don't take kind to that. Oh, sorry about that. Thank you. I, I looked at the questions. Do you want to just answer the question? Because I, I looked at them. I looked you at them. You can just ones. answer the questions. That's so, fine. yeah, I think we can just answer the questions, Lisa. One of the questions that I received was about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You know that passage? And that's one of the ones that people always ask me about. And I always like to say once again, like, remember the God that you serve. God is going to give you some kind of trick thing that he's not going to tell you what it is. It's like, oops, you did it. It's like too late. <laughs> and so when I was a pastor, people would always come to me and say, I think I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I was like, man, sorry for you. <laughs> but <laughs> you see me that last time. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I did it, but then I, I called him back. That's why I'm not a pastor anymore. <laughs> but, but what I would say is the first thing you need to understand is think about what the characters in the Bible did who got forgiven. Like, David was foul, and God forgave him. But forget even about David. You might say that's like the Old Testament. Well, Saul was a murderer, right? Paul. Jesus' own disciples betrayed him. And so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can't be something that is this minor offense that we can commit and not know about. What I think is we have this perception that God is our enemy who's looking for a reason to get us instead of God as our friend. And if you understand that God is our friend, then you see that the same people, it says in the book of Acts that a lot of people who became Christians in the early church were former Pharisees. So then what is going on? In the, so keep that, like, that's like what you know about God that you bring to your individual passages. Look at that text in particular. Jesus is, is engaging in his ministry. He's doing healings and these other things. And they're attributing that to Beelzebub and not the spirit. And he says, listen, if you think that what I'm doing is not of God, then you can't actually receive the forgiveness. In other words, the real issue is the ways in which our resistance to what, what their resistance to what Jesus was doing made them unable to receive God's forgiveness. So in that context, 
as it related to the ministry of Jesus as he came through their villages to attribute what he was doing to Satan meant to miss it. And so he's really talking about the urgency of accepting what he is doing as the work of God as he came through. It doesn't mean that like if you that for us, there's now this sin of which we can never be forgiven. But it's the similar kind of move, though. If God is at work and you attribute what Jesus is doing to Satan, then how are you going to be forgiven? But if you do, you start saying, no, I see that God is at work. Then that is something that you can then be a part of. And I know that because Paul did the exact thing. I just want you to understand. Paul saw the early Christians and said, that is satanic. And he arrested them and killed them. And then he changed his mind and he became effective for God. So if you can kill somebody who is on God's team and still be useful to God, then none of us are beyond his redemption. Thank you. I want to apologize for our technical difficulties we were having. Um, our questions weren't transferring to the iPads, so and we had to get a plan B, so that was our delay. Also, I realized that I kept saying, join us in the process. I meant to say, join us in the progress. As I was saying, I was like, I don't think this is what we wrote down, but uh, <laughs> progress. Let's get to the questions that you submitted. Um, Old Testament, we're going to go with, why does, no, that's New Testament. Why does the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart he doesn't seem to give him a chance to repent. <laughs> um, thank you to whoever asked this question. Um, yeah, it's a challenging one. I think, um, I think part of what I would want to say here is um, I think a lot of this has to do with uh, the way we understand Hebrew language. So in that same uh, passage, uh, we're told actually both that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so there are three different uh, phrases going on, all of them describing this process of what is going on within Pharaoh. And so I think, I think um, in, in a way, an earlier example is kind of helpful here, because sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, um, language is attributed uh, to describe something that God is doing that sounds like it's a kind of active um, intentional um, way that he's acting upon somebody when actually um, what is really being described is his kind of permissive will, his allowance of something that's happening. So, for example, if we want to hop back to, to Samuel, um, you know, when we talked about um, the wives being given into uh, David's arms, but a little bit further down, it talks about how um, how God will give David's wives in, in, over to Absalom. And, and you hear that and you think, oh, I'm sorry, you, it, you're saying that God is actually going to, like, allow for polygamy and the violation of women in this kind of, like, here you go, this is something that I'm approving of? Of course not. That, that sounds against everything that we read about the character of God and, and contradicts so much of, of what we know to be true of him. So what, what is that? That's a statement of permissive will of God saying, actually, I'm going to allow something to happen. Why does he allow these things to happen? Why does he allow Pharaoh's heart to be hardened? Why does he allow... Um, that to happen with Absalom, because actually he's, he's a, a respecter of persons, and he actually gives us uh, the freedom of will to make our, our own choices. And, and that's a really painful thing, because sin doesn't just affect the person who's made the decision to sin, it harms everybody else. That's, that's the whole devastation, isn't it, of, of, of what has happened to us. Um, but actually, um, in order for a relationship with him to be meaningful, to really love us, we, ha we actually have to be able to, to 
make those decisions, to hold that responsibility, to be treated as people who, when we choose the course, God, God allows it to progress. And so I think that is what we see happening with Pharaoh. I do actually think God um, does give space for him to repent. I think that's why you see the progression of the plagues that come. You know, it doesn't, it, it escalates, doesn't it? Um, and he keeps trying and he keeps giving him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity uh, to respond differently. Um, but Pharaoh is in a state of mind where his heart is hard and it's getting harder and he doesn't want, he doesn't want to repent. He doesn't want to hear this. And so I actually think God allows that to happen, um, not, not because that's even would be his desire. Um, I do believe God wills all people to be saved, uh, but, but he allows it to happen knowing, knowing where it's going and also knowing that actually he's, you know, he's going to do something miraculous to bring liberation to his people despite the hardness of, of this man's heart. I'm I'm no New Testament scholar, but can I say something? Oh, you're loud. Be careful of having sympathy for the oppressor. Yes. I mean, I mean, he's Pharaoh, and I want you, and this is something I think that you should take from the text. Like Pharaoh, first of all, enriched himself and his nation by exploiting the labor of the Hebrew people over the course of centuries. Right. And they didn't they didn't lift a finger. And they had calloused their hearts. So this, in other words, we see a point in time in Pharaoh's life, but he had his whole life to free the Israelites. And there's this thing, and Jesus talked about it. We can't get into it what Jesus talked about, this same kind of phenomenon, and that you see this opportunity. And this is the part that the Bible doesn't actually make clear. God will give you plenty of opportunities to repent, and he will come to you again and again and again. But the Bible also makes clear there are these places where God says, okay, and he says it. I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh one way or the other. I mean, he's going to be glorified in your repentance or in your judgment. And there's this place where God seems to say, I'm done playing with you. And now I'm going to use your stubbornness for my glory. So Pharaoh's hardening his heart. God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. But now what happens is Pharaoh has gotten himself into this dangerous place where he's set in opposition to God. And God goes, okay, I'm going to let you stay on this course so that through my judgment of you, people begin to recognize that I'm God. And one of the things you should take from that story is be careful if you wait too long. And there isn't a time, right? There isn't like you get five calls, right? The same thing happens with the, with the, with the Jews, the Jewish people. God sends prophet after prophet after prophet. And the prophet's always like, he gonna, he's going to come, he's going to come. And we don't know when that last prophet comes to us until judgment falls. And so we should take from that text, not why does God eventually set Pharaoh, allow the course that Pharaoh set to be that way, but how many times did God did he ignore God before it happened? One of the interesting things about that, though, is that Pharaoh, and we don't know, the story, the story doesn't tell us, Pharaoh sees his army destroyed. And what if at that point, after all of that stuff, Pharaoh has this moment where he kind of sees the wreckage that his pride has brought him to? We don't, we don't know. Maybe then he recognizes Yahweh. I mean, he knows not to mess with Yahweh. He didn't go and get him. And so um, I think that we should be careful about what is actually going on here and not miss the point of God's judgment being real. And you can have a real theology of God's grace, which is really, really important. And God is that even gracious to Pharaoh and to the tyrants. But God does judge sin. And the people of Egypt, in particular Pharaoh, ate off of those Hebrew, those, he'll say Hebrew Israelites. (laughs) 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 Off of those Israelites for decades. Thank you. Um, Next question goes to you, New Testament. Why does Jesus only give adultery as the reason for divorce? Some pastors have used this to say domestic violence isn't reason enough to leave. 
Well, once again, we have to think about not just what the author says, but what the author is trying to accomplish through what he says. And this, this is important. It's authorial intent. So what I want you to at least ask yourself, does Jesus imagine a scenario in which a husband is beating a woman half to death, but it's not cheating on her, and that's what he's trying to address in this passage? That's actually what we believe, even what we know about Jesus' character. The answer to that question is, of course not. The point of that passage is, once again, to protect women. If you divorce a woman, it sends her tumbling down the economic ladder. This is actually true in our context, too, right? That every study has shown, even in our modern Western developed context, that the person who, who suffers most economically from every, almost every divorce, forget what you hear about like these celebrity divorces. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actual marriages of people who are like here. The women suffer and the children suffer. And so the reason that Jesus is staying, saying stay married is because the women and the children are going to suffer. So if you're now then interpreting that passage to cause women to suffer more, then you miss the intent. So you also can begin to see that in places like in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually talks about, well, if he's abandoned you, God's called you to peace. So in other words, Paul himself imagines scenario, other scenarios other than that which Jesus um, envisions there. And so once again, I know that divorce is complicated and it's really hard to litigate anybody's individual divorce and that's not my place. What I would say is that Paul, that Jesus' disposition is toward the protection of women and that the important part about this, and this is the complicated thing to say, you can say both of these things at the same time. Protecting women and the vulnerable are, is important and we should not divorce casually. We can say those things. And we can say that God created marriage to picture something about God's love for the church and the life that comes out of that love is reflected in children. We can say that that's God's picture. And then we can focus on that. And then we can begin to ask ourselves in community, in the context of a Christian community, what happens to those kinds of things breaks down? And how do we make sense of that? And how do we rebuild um, after those kinds of things? So I don't think that Jesus' intent was to tell a woman she needs to stay somewhere and be abused. Especially, once again, when Paul's own statements talking about abandonment and those kinds of things. So that's what I would say about that. His intent was one thing. Paul himself seemed to imagine other scenarios. And we can both affirm the importance of marriage and say you shouldn't divorce lightly. I don't know how many people actually divorce lightly anymore. But you shouldn't divorce lightly while at the same time recognizing the need to protect those who are vulnerable. Thank you. In the Old Testament... Dr. Vitale. We you should just give a whole lecture on Deuteronomy and just quit breaking it up. You just walk through Deuteronomy. <laughs> I don't think anyone needs that. <laughs> so Deuteronomy 22 verses. I was just guessing. <laughs> 28 through 29. 28. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. How do we make sense of this? I'm assuming the writer is, saying, is trying to, I mean, the questioner is asking, how do we make sense of this? Because it seems like a woman that's raped is forced 
to marry her rapist. Yeah, I was saying to Lisa earlier that all the hardest texts seem to be Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Exodus 21 and 22, and you keep coming with them. Um, so, yeah, this one is, um, it's, it's, um, it, it hits us viscerally, I think, when we hear that, like the, the idea of, of being put in a situation where not only you get raped by somebody, but then you, you have to marry them. Um, that's really, really hard to hear. Um, I think some of the um, the two examples that come before this help us to understand what's going on a little bit um, in the sense that um, for, before that, we're first told that um, if a man and a woman are caught in adultery and, it, and it's a clear case of adultery, they're both complicit, then um, they both uh, are found guilty and receive the death, death penalty. Um, if uh, it's a situation where actually um, it's unclear whether it was rape or not, um, because uh, you know they're in a context where the woman couldn't be heard to cry out, is the example that's given, and then the woman is given the benefit of the doubt, and the man is put to death and she is not. So actually in that case, um, it, it's, it's protecting her. Um, so then what do we do with this third one? Because it seems like there's an understanding and some kind of compassion that's being put out there, but then you get to this verse. Well, um, I, think, I think the first thing is Hebrew language is very specific. And so, actually, in this particular example, the word that's used that has been translated as rape actually isn't the word that's used for rape else in, in other instances, which usually is a word that kind of implies to force. Um, the, one, the, the phrase that's used here is to take hold of. So it is a physical initiation, but it's not the same word. Um, and, and then I think when we're trying to understand this passage, it helps us to look back to actually um, Exodus uh, 22, which is probably the original law that this was based upon. Um, and Exodus 22 um, actually helps us understand it better because in that context, it actually says um, um, if, if a man seduces a woman. And it seems to be that maybe that's the kind of dynamic that's going on where clearly he's taken the initiative. I mean, she's a virgin. She's, she's young. Um, so this is a situation where um, Either way, there's a kind of taking advantage that is going on, but I think it, there may be a, it's a case that actually it isn't talking about rape, but it is talking about a kind of taking advantage or seducing a young woman. Now, that's still a really big deal in this context where, um, you know, that, that marriage is seen as this monogamous, uh, you know, covenant and virgins to be protected in that society. And so that is why I think this law is given as this strong deterrent for the man to basically say, you can't just go and sleep with whatever young woman you desire, because actually, if you do that, um, you're going to have to marry her. Um, you can't just callously do this. But secondly, you will never be able to divorce her. There is no provision for that. And thirdly, um, you're going to have to pay the full price of the dowry that you would have had to pay even though you've already had sex with her because you can't go about just trying to get a wife cheaply um, by doing it this way and then not having to pay the, the price that you would typically have to pay in these situations and if that sounds really cold and callous talking about money in this context actually that while well, the money was given to the father the intention behind that was always that the money would be kept for the daughter so that if her husband dies or her father dies, she winds up down the line as um, Issa's been saying, women are in a really precarious economic situation in these cultures. Actually, that money was kept for her, for her survival. So actually, that money is important for her. And so, but I think the key here is, although the man is under an obligation uh, to marry her, there's no, in both Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 22, he has no other option. Actually, that's not true of the woman. 
Um, that's that's uh, hinted at in Deuteronomy 22. It's spelled out more explicitly in Exodus 22, where it actually says that the father can refuse and he still gets the money. And it's talking about the father because she's she's young and it's an extra layer of protection. Um, he would have he had a duty of care towards her within that culture. And so it's basically saying she can't be like forced into something because the family have have the right to say no. This would be harmful for her. Or no, he's already married. Or no, this this man is this is not okay. The circumstances show this is a violent man. No, no like this this would be terrible for our daughter. So basically, the family have the right to decline. Uh, the only person who's under an obligation to be married in that situation is the man. And then the other just final point I want to say, which is really hard for us to kind of get our heads around because I, I don't feel this way. And so when I read, read the text, um, it, it always hits me. But, but, but it, it's, it's notable that um, in 2 Samuel um, chapter 13, when, when Tamar, the daughter of David, is raped by her brother... Um, her response in, in that situation after that's happened is actually to beg him to marry her. And that blows my mind. It, it really blows my mind. But, but from her perspective, knowing how vulnerable it was to be a woman at that time, she actually thinks for her that would be the better outcome than that he not marry her and her be left um, degraded in the way that she has been. And so sometimes we're judging this from a 21st century perspective outside of a culture and we're putting our feelings onto the women. I know I do this. I'm like, why would you want that? Why would you do that? How is that okay? But actually sometimes what you would desire within that culture might not be how we would feel. So you just have to be careful not to assume this kind of like superiority outside of a culture that we're not living in when, when we're trying to understand it from um, a lot of centuries away. But nevertheless, I do believe the intention behind this text, like the ones that come before it, is actually about uh, the protection of the virgin who's, who's been taken advantage of in this situation rather than um, being on, on the side of, uh, of this man who's taken advantage of her. Thank you. We're going to switch the, to the New Testament, Dr. McCauley. Um, y'all are just great. I just want to say that uh, I'm glad that I don't have to answer these questions. Um, New Testament, why does the Lord say he did not come to bring peace, but a sword, yet Isaiah called him Prince of Peace? I mean, I guess they got me. Uh, <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> I think that this is, this is actually really, really important, and I'm, I'm trying to be brief because I want to make sure that, um, but it's, once again, you have to be and I'm talking about the reader, so don't, if this is you, I'm not being cruel. I'm talking about having an agile mind versus a brittle mind. And these brittle minds, these things, and sometimes people talk about um, like type A versus type B personalities, all of these things. But sometimes we have to realize that the Bible does not communicate according to our disposition. And what we began to think of as normal discourse, the Bible does not see that way. And we have to learn to begin to think how deep, how biblical writers think. Now, what I mean by that is in the Old Testament, there's prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And this idea is that when he comes, he's going to establish peace. There's imagery there of the lion and the wolf lying down together. And Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of that prophecy. But the question becomes, like with any prophecy, what aspects of these things are fulfilled when? In some sense, Jesus is the, is the Prince of Peace when he arrives, where we, are, we have peace with God. 
One of the things that they say in the book of Hebrews is that those who believe have entered into the rest of God. So in other words, we might have lived our lives in opposition to God, and now when Jesus comes, we have peace with him. But not only peace with God, we have peace or wholeness within ourselves. It's essentially we don't find ourselves until Jesus reveals to us what we were actually created to be. We also have a new community where goodness, patience, kind, but goodness, patience, kindness, self-control are all within the community. So there's a sense in which this peace is seen partially now, but what it really envisions is the kingdom coming in its fullness. When God comes, when Jesus comes back in his second advent, they will study no more war no more, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares. So there is a sense in which the Prince of Peace will not just be about peace with God, will actually see the end of conflict. So what do you do between now and then? The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, should they be called the sons of God. Our work of peacemaking and justice and reconciliation are pictures of God's coming kingdom. Now, that's peace, and we can follow all of the way. That's just tracing it one way. What about this idea then that Jesus doesn't come to bring peace but a sword? What he means is they're kind of the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent people oppose it. So our ministry of peace, justice, and reconciliation will be opposed because the, the kingdom of darkness doesn't want the kingdom of light to go forward. So Jesus' ministry of peace actually causes conflict by those who oppose it. And the interesting thing about it is sometimes that conflict is within your own family. And that's what he's talking about. Sometimes you're coming in, and, and, and here's the thing. You could actually be about, I don't want to preach too much. You can actually be trying to bring peace and healing and wholeness, and some folks only want drama, right? And your kindness is actually infuriating, right? And so there is a sense in which, yes, the peace brings its own resistance, which is a form of a lack of peace. But it's not saying that Jesus' fundamental disposition is to come to for the sake of division. But the, the gospel itself is a crisis, right? And this is what I want you to, and, and maybe I'll stop preaching about it. But when Jesus comes to you, it is a crisis because you've got to decide what you're going to do about it. It is very difficult to be indifferent about it. You either embrace it or sometimes you resist it. And so Jesus, as not bringing peace, is not saying that, he, that like, he's not the prince of peace. He's saying that his ministry of reconciliation and healing is that thing which is opposed. And I think that if you talked about, if you thought about your own lives, you imagine that same dynamic. The very healing that you want to bring to situations and relationships is the thing that causes a lot of the drama. And I'll just stop because people like us to be messy, but it's actually the healed person that often causes a lot of drama. So that's what I think, that the piece is, um, you trace it through the Bible, it speaks to reconciliation with God, reconciliation with, within self, reconciliation of neighbor, culminating in the beloved community when God comes again. But in the meantime, the people who see that kingdom of light, and Paul, one of the people said it, John says it, that because their deeds are dark, they sometimes oppose those things, and that's where the lack of peace comes from. And, and, and sadly, sometimes that's close to you within your own family and the people that you love. Thank you, Dr. McCauley. Um, I want to get to the next question in the legal codes again. This came from the... <laughs> Y'all don't got any question about the prophets? <laughs> All that justice stuff. Y'all couldn't say, isn't it great how God cares about poor people? Y'all couldn't ask that question. 
Look at God defending orphans and widows. Y'all didn't have any of those. Okay. <laughs> 30,000 passages about justice. All of the, okay, never mind. Go ahead. Y'all, I know you can ask your question. I'm just messing with you. But it's interesting, right? Yeah. People love the prophets. <laughs> so uh, legal codes. This is, uh, carries more significance for Joe and I because we're pastor's daughters. So um, in Leviticus 21, a priest can burn his daughter. Oh. Um, I don't have the, uh, I don't have my iPad, so I don't have the exact question, but um, Dr. Cool. Vitale um, knows the question okay. uh, I'm referring I'll to, and it's it on the, uh, yeah. it's on pigeonhole. I'll read it I'll, to you. I'll, I'll read the question again. Um, if the priest defile, if the priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father, she must be burnt in the fire. Leviticus 21.9. How do we make sense of this, fellow pastor's daughter? Yeah, it's a little bit of a gulp, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Lisa, what do you do with this text? Um, yeah, okay, here we go. Um, so firstly, this chapter, again, context, this chapter is about um, the holiness of priests, the whole thing. Um, and, it's, and I appreciate that because actually uh, it's basically saying the fact that you have power and authority in your position doesn't mean you get a free pass. In fact, you're, you're held to a higher standard. Uh, you can't abuse your power. You can't get off the hook and not obey the laws that other people are called to obey. So in that sense, it's good that, that there's a high standard of holiness for those who are priests and, and are serving the Lord in that way. Um, on the other hand, uh, it has implications for the whole household. So, you know, this man is the head of his house and therefore not just him, but his whole household is called to a higher standard of holiness. And um, that's why... Um, in relation to what she does here. It says he's disgraced. Actually, what, what it really is implying is, is the practical consequences that he would be disqualified from the priesthood because of what's happened. Why? Not because he's being punished for her sin. I think the Bible actually doesn't punish people for other people's sins, but, but actually in this kind of patriarchal context, it does recognize that um, the basic uh, unit um, isn't the individual, but it's the family, it's the household. And, and I think there's something good about that in the sense that it recognizes we have a kind of corporate responsibility for each other and our actions impact other people's. And so in, in this case, um, he's kind of failed in his duty of care of his daughter um, for her to have got to this point. So there are consequences for him too. But, but what is going on in terms of talking about this daughter being burnt? I mean, that just sounds absolutely grotesque. And, and the one thing I want to highlight is actually the Old Testament um, it's very careful not to talk about torturing people or, or, or putting them to death in really cruel and gruesome ways. It actually stands apart from what you see in some of the other ancient and recent cultures. So this seems really out of place, especially when we know that that burning people in particular was was really anathema to the Israelites because that was how um, children were sacrificed to the, um, the Canaanite god Molech in the fire. And so I think part, our understanding of this text is helped when we compare it to Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, we're told that basically Joshua has also um, profaned the, uh, a, a direct command from the Lord, and therefore he's to be put to death. And it says he's going to be burned in the fire, but what actually happens is he's put to death in the typical way, which is he's stoned, and then his body is burned, rather than being buried, which would be Jewish custom. And I think the reason they burn his body is as a symbol of this particularly strong judgment on his actions. And I think the same thing is happening in this context. So don't actually think she's burned to death, but I think it's talking about what happens after um, a death penalty would be carried out. Now, this is still hard, so bear with me, because we're, we're still going here. Um, but 
but when, it, when we talk about her actual actions, actually the Old Testament um, doesn't have a death penalty for prostitution. It, it strongly condemns it, um, but it doesn't have a death penalty. I think that's in part because of recognizing that she often those who are prostitutes, there's a system of abuse going on there when sometimes they've been forced into it by by others. And so um, I don't actually, when, when you look at the word in this context, it actually it's limiting to say that it's referring just to prostitution. I actually think it's talking about promiscuous behavior. I think that's a better translation of this verb here. And I think we've already looked at, you know, the context for when a man seduces a virgin. So that's not what's going on here. I don't think it's the profession of prostitution. I think when it's talking about her promiscuous behavior, I think it's talking about the context of adultery and probably the context of her being betrothed but not yet married, which would explain why she's still in her father's house and under his authority. And that helps us clue in a little bit as to what might be going on here because if you're in the house of a priest, then actually like the priest himself, you have the right to eat the holy offering. So it's offered to God, but you also partake of that food. And so there's a sense in which the way you behave really matters because you're sharing a table with God. You know, this is the offerings that people are making as propitiations for sin, and it really matters how that's treated. So that's kind of why this is a big deal. But in the sense of, of the way um, of the death penalty being afforded to her, I actually think that's just paralleling what you see in every other case of adulterous behavior in the Old Testament. Now, just one final thought about that, because I know that still seems exceptionally harsh to us. We think, how can you be put to death for committing adultery? Like, where is the grace there? Um, it comes back to that question I asked at the beginning. If there's a really severe penalty for something, then what, it, what is being protected? And I think what the severity of your laws tell you what a culture values. So, for example, in our culture today, you go to prison for theft, but adultery is not a crime. In ancient Israel, you'd pay financial restitution for theft, but you're put to death for adultery, which kind of begs this question, what do we value? Do we value people or do we value possessions? Do we value resources or do we value relationships? And I think what we're seeing in the Old Testament is that God strongly values people and he values relationships, particularly the marital relationship. I mean, think of the devastation that happens when adultery is committed to, the, to not just to the individual, to the immediate family, the whole community. It's, it's devastating. And I think that's why the laws are so strict around it. But one other thing to say here is actually the fact that the death penalty can be given in a situation isn't laid out as if that is always the default reaction. Actually, that is given as the maximum penalty for a particular crime. There will be judges who will adjudicate what is fair in each individual situation. And actually, there are 16 crimes in the Old Testament for which um, you can receive the death penalty. Um, but, but it seems like 15 of them, um, you're allowed to pay a ransom instead, which would be like a financial restitution instead of death itself. There's only one where we're told you can't pay a ransom for a crime, and, and that's in the case of intentional murder, where we're told it's a life for a life because that's how highly God values human life. But in every other case, it seems that actually both in, in um, the surrounding cultures and in ancient Israel that there was this practice of paying a ransom rather than um, being put to death. So that's the context I think we also want to remember that mercy has the final word. We look to Jesus, John 8, don't we, in his response to the woman who's about to be stoned for committing adultery, and there's this glaring omission. It's like, where's the guy? You know, why is she being put to death? Where is the man? And, um, and, and yet in that situation, Jesus says to her, you know, does no one condemn you? And therefore, neither will I. But then he says, go and sin no more. And I was thinking about that the other day, and I was thinking, actually, what he could have said in that situation is it, it, what he's really saying is take me instead. You know, because the sin is still serious, but that's actually what, what he came to die for. And it's interesting to me that actually the, the, um, the verse right before verse 9 here, which talks about, 
um, you know, the, the priest's daughter, it, it actually says of the priest, you must consider them holy because I, the Lord, am holy and I make you holy. And I think, isn't that what Jesus does when he says, take me instead, when he won't condemn her? Um, that, that's how he makes us holy. Anna, Anna I'm going to take advantage because I feel like a lot of the tonight has focused around case, I mean, the case law. And one of the things, and forgive me, this is New Testament scholar, so I'm stealing one of your questions, but this is helpful for me when I dealt with some of this stuff. And one of the things that I read about it was to think about the Deuteronomic law as wisdom and how it was common for, like, the God or whoever to kind of give the people the law to, that shows his character. And that everything in the law wasn't actually scenarios that played themselves out exactly the way that they're described there. So, for example, if you actually think about most of the time that people mess up in the Bible, God rarely gives them the strict application of the law. Even if you go all the way back to the Genesis story, that, you know, God does not give the strict application of the law. You eat this, you will surely die. This mercy intervenes. And so actually you see the exact same thing in the history of Israel, maybe this isn't a question. You can tell me this is, this is how I deal with these things. In the history of Israel, they are constantly breaking these laws. And God's like, you shouldn't do it. And he gives them a thousand or two years. And so the way I've looked at those laws is maybe revealing God's disposition. And what I think you've done a lot tonight is show that undergirding a lot of these laws is this instinct towards, in a lot of cases, protection that may be a little bit ambiguous to us. And so I think it's much different than saying, God wanted someone to, like, burn their daughter versus God thinks that adultery is bad and these laws reveal those kinds of things. It doesn't mean that God never judges it, but, like, even David and the other people who are caught, mercy often intervenes. So law's wisdom allows me to both take seriously what the law reveals and then account for mercy. That's how I was taught it as a New Testament scholar. I'm asking you, as an Old Testament scholar, am I allowed to make that move? Esau's gone rogue, and he's just doing you know, his own I'm questions. jumping testaments. Jump, I'm jumping testaments. I'm jumping testaments. Yeah. But that's how no, I deal good. with it. No, I love it. I, I 100% agree. And actually, you said it really well, Ellie, when you're talking about slavery, that the important thing isn't so much, we don't start with where, what are the laws limiting. We start with what was the original intention? You know, and if you want to know the original intention of God's heart for women, you just go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you see this incredible vision of I mean, my goodness, women made in the image of God right alongside men. Are you kidding me in that ancient context? Like, that's stunning. Like, that is the most outrageous statement of equality um, for that time. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. So I think you know, that's where you begin. And if, if you start with that place, then when you get to these, all of these different tricky passages, you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to take some figuring out. But I, but I know the intent, so I know what it can't be. And that, like you said, then you don't panic. You're not panicking all the time because you know the starting point. I had to use something easy because they were coming for you the whole time. So I don't know if we, we do we need to stop? Uh, we have uh, 10 minutes. Okay. Do you want the question? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I took over, but I, I feel like y'all been coming at Joe so hard. I had to give her a chance to say something good Thank about you. the Bible. <laughs> um, yeah. So the last question we want to end with is for either one of you. Um, it deals with the gender of God throughout scripture. Is God gendered? Um, is he, can he only be, can God only be known as male? Can he be female? Which is uh, kind of uh, interesting take at the problematic passages question, yeah. but we're gonna, we're gonna take a stab at it. Do you wanna um, go first or you want, uh, should I go since you've been? Whatever, yeah, you go. Um, 
I think to say that God is gendered is probably, like, there's a lot that's going on there in that word. So I don't think that God is male. Um, I mean, Jesus is male. And um, yeah. before you go, to be fair, I, the, the phone uh, just went black on me. So I'm just going off the question from memory. If they could put it up on pigeonhole so I could see it. So I'll just read it correctly so we don't assume um, the... Uh, so, but I do think that it is, it's okay to use the same images that God uses to refer to himself in the Bible. In other words, I think it's fine to call God Father because God's fatherhood is how he's constantly depicted throughout the scripture. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is when you look at God's fatherhood in the scripture, it is not tied to, well, I'll say what I'll use the positive, it's, to, it's tied to God as rescuer. So in other words, God as father, when, when Israel was a child, you know, out of Egypt, I called my son. So when they use God as father in just about every place in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament, it's God's compassion towards his children who are wayward and God's desire to come and rescue. And so what he's trying to speak to in God's fatherhood is God's desire to care and to rescue. And God also uses father, he also uses in, in some places some eternal language, how he gathers you under his, I mean, the, as a hen gathers, I guess I'm trying to get it under her wing. So you see both of those, but I think that it is fine to use father language to refer to God. If, if I believe in God's scripture that he reveals to us, he uses that language. It doesn't mean from that. And once again, you talk about what the text intends to communicate through that. God referring to himself as father is not intended to place men above women. It's meant to speak about God's providential care for his people. And so if you say that God is gendered in the sense that God as father speaks to the valuation of women, then actually I would say you're just interpreting the fatherhood language wrong. And you don't solve that problem by dismissing the father language. You solve that problem by um, understanding the fatherhood language correctly. And I think that the fact that Jesus is like he becomes a human as a male, you can talk about Jesus as a male, but I don't think that once again creates a hierarchy within like creation that God values men more than women. I just think that fatherhood and rescue is one way of depicting how God interacts in the world. Um, one thing, can I, can I add something to this though? And this, will make you, this may make you all feel good, at least to understand a, a, a counter example over to the side. Paul refers to his pastoral ministry, sometimes using really militant and masculine language. He talks about soldiering. But he also uses the language of breastfeeding, right? And he says, I was gentle with you like a newborn mother. And so Paul uses both in his own pastoral ministry, both images of I'm a soldier and I'm like a mother who's feeding you. He says, I'm in labor pains until Christ is birthed in you. So pastoral ministry then has both maternal and paternal imagery which shows that entering into God's work for God's people involves both aspects of masculinity and what we would call femininity. And so I don't think that we need to fight um, the battle around these things by removing the language that the scripture itself uses. I think the better solution is to attend to how scripture as a whole depicts God. Okay, just a couple more. Um, that's just to think about that um, imagery of 
um, masculine and feminine imagery, because actually God does the same in the Old Testament, doesn't he? When he talks about, you know, in Isaiah, like, can a mother forget the babe at her breast? And then he talks about how he hasn't forgotten, you know, his children. There's images of God as a seamstress. Or Jesus, who, you know, talks about um, looking on Jerusalem and wanting to gather his people to him like a, a mother hen. It's that kind of maternal emotion that's coming out there. So um, for me, as you said, I, I like to inhabit the language of the Bible because I feel like that is what God has given to us. And particularly that's what Jesus has given to us when he talks about God as father. I think that really means something powerful and relational. And, and I think that's beautiful. And so I want to inhabit and talk about God the way that Jesus does. He calls on him as, you know, Abba, Father. Um, but, um, you know, as Issa has said, is, is God himself, and, you know, before incarnation, is, is, is there a sense of God being gendered? No, that's why it's meaningful to talk about men and women being made in the image of God, because both of us reflect something of who God is. That couldn't be true, or men would be more in the image of God if God was male, but that's not how it's spoken about in Scripture. I think that's important. And then just the last thing to say on that is, yes, Jesus is gendered, and I hear this all the time, like, you know, does that show that God is biased towards men, that he came as a male? But there's actually something very powerful in the fact that um, think of the elevation of, of Mary, like just a normal human woman who actually in the early church was given the title Theotokos, God-bearer, because literally a human woman carried the Son of God. If that is an honoring of women in a different way, so yes, Jesus is, is you know, incarnate male, but there's this woman is brought into it, given this unbelievable role of getting to carry God. So in a different way, she's not divine, but there's something so honoring about female bodies, female flesh, female dignity, that for her to be put in that role that I just think is incredible. And then I also look at Jesus and like, honestly, I've prayed this prayer for, thank God you are male, because look at the way you treat women. And, and how badly do we need that, that example of saying, if you want to know what manhood is, look at Jesus Christ. Like, look at the honoring, the dignity, the liberation, the empowering, just, just constantly meeting cultural barriers and completely overturning them out of compassion for women. And, and I just think, gosh, that, that is an, a model that we need. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful Jesus is who he was and the way he treated women. I think when I look at him, I'm like, that is the kind of God I want to spend time with. And that is the kind of, you know, God I want to worship. So. Well, this has been phenomenal. Um, I want to leave, let you all have closing comments. Um, I'll start with the Old Testament. Um, just real quick. Um, I think I just want to say, um, I started here, I'll end here. Just, just don't be afraid of asking your tough questions of the Bible. Um, I think uh, God is big enough to handle them and he's not intimidated by them. And I think if you... Don't get scared of those texts when you pull back the veil, if you're willing, as Esau said, to be patient with Scripture. Um, God, God will. He will speak to you through it. And I think, you know, I used to really struggle. Um, there was a year I really struggled with doubt when it came to the Old Testament, all these different passages. And I tried to run away from my doubt, and I ran away from the text. But actually, you can't outrun doubt. Eventually, it will overtake you. And the only way to deal with it was to turn around, go back to God, go back to those texts, and wrestle over them with him in, in the community of the church, just, just going at it, just being patient. And, and gradually, what I came to see is the very text I thought were the worst, the most oppressive, the most unjust and uncaring. I came to see, oh, my goodness, God, like, you're better than I could have imagined. You're more holy. You're more righteous. You're more compassionate. You are so good. And so now the very experience that used to be scary to me of, of, of getting into hard text when I come across one that initially freaks me out, now I feel a little bit excited about it because I'm like, what are you going to show me about yourself that at the moment I'm not understanding? So just don't be scared. 
you know, go after it. Asking hard questions is actually how you get to know somebody. That's how you love the Lord with your mind. And I think he loves that. He loves that you want to know him. He loves that you want to bring your tough questions to him, that you care enough about who he is. Say, I don't want to stay on the surface. I want to get to know you. I want to get to know these deep things about you because I know that, that you're better. And then when those challenges come along and people say things out there in culture about God <laughs> um, and they're coming at you, you can say, you know, I may not know everything, um, but I know enough. You know, I know my God better than that. You know, I know my God better than those rumors. I w- oh, y'all should always clap for Joe. Um, I want you to know that I don't, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. To like in myself, there are parts of the Bible that are still confusing to me, and that I'm not a Christian because I work through every difficulty. There's some things that me and God still talk about. He's gonna have to answer. I mean, he's not gonna have to answer. I'm not gonna have an attitude, but it'll become clear to me. I'm not, I'm not pulling up to heaven with my list of questions. Let me in, and I'll be good. Um, well, the new creation, Tom would be mad at me if I said um, heaven, when the heaven comes to earth. But nonetheless, I don't, have, um, I don't have all the answers. I'm not wrestled through a clear explanation of every single verse in the Bible, and that's not why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I believe that the tomb was empty. And I reason from the resurrection, and, and this is the important part, the same Bible that reveals Jesus to me it's the Bible that has those difficult parts. And because I believe it's a trustworthy revelation of Jesus, and he points me towards the good, the true, and the beautiful, that gives me, what, what is the patience comes from? The patience comes from the authentic, authenticity of my encounter with God through the text. And I got, you just got to make a decision. There's always going to be a reason to disbelieve. There's always going to be a reason to doubt. But you got to make a decision. And it's something that you can't just litigate by us asking these questions. You have to think about, like, is God real? Did Christ rise from the dead? And did he actually leave something that might be a God to us? And what I keep encountering when I read this text is a God who's a friend and not an enemy. And once I start saying God is my friend and he's not my enemy, he might have things in this text that he can tell me that I didn't already know. And so that I don't just come to this Bible to... I'm upset with this passage or that passage. I need to figure out a way that God agrees with me. I need to open myself up that God might have a word for me that actually reorients my life. And so part of what it means to wrestle with the text from one end to the other is to say, I trust this God who's revealed himself to me. So I'm going to turn to this place for guidance. And I'm not, and I'm going to say this, and I know we should probably go. I'm not going to allow, and I'm not dismissing trauma. If you actually knew my story, you know that I mean this seriously. I'm not going to let my trauma cause me to relitigate the resurrection. And I could acknowledge all the horrible things that people have done. I'm black, so I know that people can misuse the Bible. Our whole testimony is that. I'm not going to allow those traumas, both past and present, to take from me what I see in that text is the God who's, not a, who's a friend and not an enemy. And what I see a lot is that, like, all of these things stack up one on top of the other, and it becomes difficult to believe. And that's why I say something like, just keep swimming. Because you might find, you know, somewhere along the way, you might encounter God and you encounter hope. So even if, like, I've not done a great job, because I actually don't like answering these questions. I wish I had an hour to sit and talk back and forth with some uh, individual. But the inadequacy of the present presenters does not actually equal the inadequacy of God. So, like, if we failed you in some way, I'm sorry we did the best that we could. But there's still a God who loves you and wants to know you. And I'll just stop there. Can we give these scholars a round of applause?
they are excellent. Um, I'm so thankful for y'all. I'm thankful for y'all coming and sitting in the hot seat. Uh, we're gonna turn this over to Dr. Reverend uh, Charlie Dates to give us our closing comments. Um, thank y'all, thank y'all for coming. Thank y'all for watching, um, Dr. Dates. Y'all ain't answering none of my questions. <laughs> By the way, we should start over. First of all, uh, let me make two appeals. The first is, I'm so grateful and thankful. I'm sorry, my hat is on, I was cold. I'm so grateful that uh, Lisa Fields has been raised up in a season like this for people like me and you and so many beyond. Will you help me thank God for Lisa Fields tonight? What a gift. So I, I'm a preacher and I sometimes make my point through telling stories. I don't know that I have a cool story, but I will say this. I dreamed, Lisa, when I was in seminary a long, long time ago, of a way to bridge what I was learning in the academy with the church that I would pastor. It took a while to actually get to that space. Uh, but I wanted so bad for the people I serve to be able to wrestle critically in thinking and with passion of the heart with what I was learning. I knew that it would not cripple their faith, it would build their faith. Well, I got into the pastor and then things got busy as they do, their politics, their funerals, their people getting married and all kind of stuff. And every now and then that memory comes up in my mind. Hey, I wish I could give people, you know, part of what I got. I sat in that balcony tonight, and I walked around and I sat on the side, and I said, man, Lisa has brought, not just to Progressive, but to many churches, something that you could not buy. You couldn't spend your time doing, and she's made it accessible because God has put a burden on our heart. We don't have, like, we don't control who get the Grammys. I don't know that you would want a stellar anyway. Um, we, we don't control who gets the Oscars or the Emmys. But I want to say, just as a chocolate pastor on the south side of Chicago, you deserve a major heart award from us for bringing to the church these critical discussions in such relevant and pedestrian ways. We honor you tonight, Lisa. Thank God for you. And as I say that, I'm not saying that as, as one who um, doesn't kind of put his resources where, hi Leslie, as one who does not put his resources where uh, his work is, our church supports the ministry of Jude 3. And we support it not only in our giving, but we support it in hosting pieces like this. Now we ain't the coolest church on the South side. The black Christian influencers, they don't really come here to check us out just yet. Our videos are not on YouTube and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, our stage ain't blacked out and the Intella lights ain't everywhere. We have a LED wall for functional reasons. Like it ain't just, it's so the people in the balcony could see. We just ain't throwing up cool graphics and stuff. So Lisa could go anywhere, but we want her to come here, even in our historic setting. And so one of the ways that we support is we, I've made this clear to Lisa, whatever you need from us in Chicago, you got it. But I don't want to be the only person doing that. I want to ask those of you who came tonight, those of you who are watching, and those of you who know the value of this ministry, would you sow a seed and would you give? And 
I feel like coming to America. I know it's a dated reference now. We, we'd rather, we, don't, we appreciate the kind of jingles. We'd rather have the kind that folds. Uh, we're, we're not going to pass a container around. Y'all don't carry cash anyway. You don't even remember what cash feels like. You, you got all kind of apps and stuff. Would you please give tonight? I mean, a gift of $50, $100. Some of you can do a gift of five, six, seven dollars $700. But even if you got $15, whatever it is, so let's see, skip getting your nails done one week. I know that's blasphemy, but skip it one week. Give it. Well, I didn't get to the hair part. I got to just the nails because some of us ain't, ain't got much to cut. Um, but, but give, 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 give. And while I'm talking about giving, let me tell you of the greatest giver who ever gave a gift. When you were bankrupt, hopeless, and helpless. I love the way Gardner Taylor says this. He said, God took the treasury of heaven and dumped it on earth. He said that after having received Jesus, if you go back to God and ask God for anything else, God would pull his pockets out of his pants like a pauper and say, I ain't got nothing else to give. God loves you, whoever you are, with all of your questions and your concerns, with all the things you think you understand and the things you don't. He loves you so much that he became flesh. Oh, we like to say it this way. He became the supply of his own demand. That what he asks for from you, he became for you. And he rendered himself human. And in that regard, he answered all our questions. And then it would be one thing if Jesus were just a phenomenal human being. It would be one thing, like the Gnostics thought, maybe he's an emanation. But on that cross, he built a highway from the terra firma down here to his throne up there. So that while we live in the land of some more, those of us who are believers are on our way to the land of no more. There's some more pandemics, some more deaths, some more shootings on these expressways in Chicago, some more disappointments, some more relational faults, some more debt, some more pain, some more loss. But can I tell y'all, I'm on my way to a place where there's no more shootings. No more viruses, no more losses, no more sons who have to grieve the loss of their mothers on their, on their birthdays. No, no more where the wicked will cease from troubling. That's how our people used to say it. And the weary will be at rest. And all of the saints of the ages will stand at his feet and be blessed. And that doesn't happen just because you make an intellectual decision. But the Bible says it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me pray for you and with you. Would you bow your head right where you are? Close your eyes. Father, you see those whose hearts are open before you. And I pray in this moment that someone would pray that prayer of confession. That they are utterly helpless and hopeless apart from you. And I pray that as they confess their faith in Jesus Christ, that in this moment, you'll transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We love you, Lord. 
We thank you for loving us enough to handle our hard questions. We thank you for putting up with our midget intellects, trying to perceive the magnitude of your glory and your grandeur. We thank you for loving us enough to let Jesus hang on that cross to die for the very people who were putting him on it. Now we pray that you would make of us a people in this generation who are not so narcissistic, not so selfish, but who are open-hearted and open-handed, who will share the love of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray that you add blessing upon blessing upon this ministry, that you cause the platform of Lisa Fields and her ideas, her vision to grow and be magnified for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Let the people of God say together, amen. You coming back up? Come on. Thank you, Dr. Charlie Dates. I want to say thank you again to Dr. Dates and Progressive Baptist Church. We want to thank, again, IVP. And as a special offer, IVP is giving 40% off um, using the code 40IVP22 of Dr. McCauley's book. So definitely take advantage of that 40% off um, in addition to free shipping. So it's a fantastic deal. Um, definitely take advantage of them. Thank you, IVP. Take advantage of that. Thank you, IVP, for being a sponsor. And thank you, uh, Nehemiah and Kingdom Promotions. We're so thankful for all of you for coming out. Um, we appreciate you. Um, is there, is, am I missing anything? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to pray aside and we're, we're going to dismiss. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for those who've watched. Thank you for those who are present in this room. We pray that they have safe travels, that they would return to their home and everything would be in order as they left it. Um, we pray that your power would rest on those who are wrestling with these passages, that you would give them insight, that you would give them wisdom as they navigate problematic passages. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would bless us as we leave. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.